One of the things I love about following the news is that it provides me with so many sermon illustrations. Okay, like just this past week, I don't know if you caught this story, but there's a guy suing a casino in Las Vegas. Just follow this? Because they allowed him to go on gambling after he was drunk, and so he lost a lot of money. That's the casino's fault, you see. Now, th this dude stood for 17 hours at a blackjack table, consumed 20 drinks, lost over $500,000. Half a million dollars. But he says the lawsuit that he's filed, it's not about the money. He says he could afford the loss, and he said that as the reporter interviewed him, he was leaning up against his $250,000 Mercedes, so maybe it's not about the money, but he said it's the principle of the thing. The casino was wrong to let him keep gambling after they, they knew he'd had too much to drink. And so now, now he wants to sue them to have his debt canceled, and he wants them to pay punitive damages for their wrongdoing. you got to love it, right? But the story graphically illustrates our human tendency to justify our wrongdoing, to justify our sins. We, we do this in a variety of ways. You know, in some cases, we, we blame somebody else, like the guy with the casino, folks. We, we say, he made me so mad that I, see, it's his fault because he made me mad. Or, or sometimes we just define sin away. That's how we justify it. You know, we, we say, well, you know, it's, it's not exactly slander. I just speak my mind about other people. Okay? Or, or sexual immorality? No, I'm just, I'm just living with my girlfriend. Or, or, or greed? I, I enjoy nice things. So we define what the Bible calls sin. We've got a different spin on it. Or sometimes we justify our wrongdoing by pointing out that it's not really, really bad like what other people do. So yeah, I get drunk on occasion, but I don't do drugs. <laughs> All right. So, so I, I, I fudge on my income tax returns, but I don't embezzle money from my company. I look at pornography, but I don't sleep around. See, we're not doing things as bad as what other people are doing. Well, the Apostle John says that genuine Christ followers don't justify their sins. In fact, they, they don't put up with their sins. John says that those who truly know Christ turn their backs on their sins, and as a result, they experience greater and greater freedom from sin's control. Now, is that you? Is sin gradually losing its stranglehold on your life? Welcome to part seven of a 12-part series called I Am a Disciple. We're studying the epistle of 1 John toward the end of your New Testament. So would you take your Bible and turn toward the end of your Bible, 1 John chapter 3. There's an outline in your program. This outline is going to be really important today uh, because I'm going to encourage you to post it somewhere you, where, where you could see it. Uh, when we're, we're done covering what God's Word says. So you want to fill it out as, as we go along. Throughout the short epistle that we're studying, uh, John keeps reiterating three basic tests that separate true disciples, I am a disciple, from those who merely say they're Christ followers or who think they're Christ followers but aren't really. Okay, we're going to drill down into one of those three tests today. I've been referring to it as the moral test. The moral test asks the question, are you walking in obedience to God's commands? Because true Christ followers, they want to learn everything they can about this book and they want to put it into practice. Now, that's the positive statement of the moral test. Are you walking in 
in obedience to God's commands. If we wanted to state that same moral test negatively, we'd say it's something like this. Are you breaking free from sin in your life? Okay, are, are you increasingly saying no to sin? That's the moral test negatively stated. This is John's topic in today's passage. He gives us four uh, what I'm going to call sin busters in this text. Four declarations that will help us in our daily battle with sin. These four declarations are what I'll call self-talk. Okay, this is what we say to ourselves as we stand at a fork in the road and we're tempted to sin. You know, when sin is knocking at our door. And let me say before we delve into this, as I was studying the passage this week and I was ruminating on these four declarations, I started putting them into practice. And I want to tell you, it works. So if you want to break free from sin... Jot these down. Make sure you fill in the outline as we go. Here's number one. Declaration number one. I will be like Christ when he appears. Okay, I will be like Christ when he appears. Now, today's text begins at the second to last verse of chapter 2 of 1 John. Okay, but it stretches all the way up through verse 10 of chapter 3. So if you've got your own Bible, you'll probably see there's one heading at the top of verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28, and then the whole section flows down to 3.10. So we're going to be skipping around a bit in this passage. Let me begin with the opening verse, though, verse 28. John says, And now, dear children, continue in him, okay, continue in Christ, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Okay, that we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. The word coming there, interesting word in John's day, it was often used to refer to the visit of a king or an emperor to your city. Okay, some important VIP is coming. The Greek word is parousia here. Now, now if you're the city, city's fathers, if you're the leaders of the city and a VIP is coming, what do you do? Well, you clean up the city. You get everything prepared. I don't know if you're a soccer fan, but uh, if you are, you know that this June, the World Cup is coming to Brazil. And while this is not a VIP, it is a very important event. And so all of the cities that are going to be hosting games are doing a massive cleanup. Okay, so they're, they're getting rid of trash in the streets and they're filling potholes and they're uh, trying to remove drug dealers off the streets and get rid of vestiges of poverty. And sometimes they're doing it a bit heavy-handedly, which is why they're running into protest if you're following the news. Uh, but I could remember just a couple of years ago, I was down in Brazil with my son Andrew, and we were visiting our international impact partner down there in Manaus. And looking around the street, you know, it's kind of dirty, a lot of garbage in the streets. Uh, Andrew stopped to play a pickup game of soccer on a playground with a bunch of Brazilian boys, and there was asphalt turn up and, uh, torn up. And, what, and I thought to myself, as I've been watching the news, I'll bet all that stuff is cleaned up right now because the World Cup is coming to town, Right? Let me ask you a question. If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back June, three months from now, what would you clean up in your life? See, that's the point that John is making here in verse 28. You know, are there patterns of sin that you would break over the next few months so as not to be ashamed at Jesus appearing? You know, think about it. You, you know you're going to be looking Jesus eyeball to eyeball three months from now. Is there an inappropriate relationship you'd get out of? W would you change the way that you spend your money, what you spend money on over the next several months? W would you delete certain music or certain uh, movies from your files? 
Would you resolve that ongoing conflict in your marriage? Would you be less selfish and more others-centered? Would you drop a few choice words from your vocabulary? I mean, if you knew that you were going to be face-to-face with the king of all kings three months from now, what sins would you get serious about busting before they humiliate you in his presence? Well, there's another aspect of Jesus appearing and its potential impact on how we deal with sin that John also mentions in the text. Drop down to verse 2 of chapter 3. And again, we're going to skip around because John kind of skips around in his thought patterns in this passage. Verse 2, he says, Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, if you've got your own Bible, underline when Christ appears in drawn arrow up to verse 28 that I read a moment ago, when he appears, middle of verse 28. So he's talking again about Christ's second coming. When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Have you ever seen a weight loss ad? I work out at a health club surrounded by TV monitors. One of the things that surprises me, how many weight loss ads there are on TV. And the other thing that surprises me is how they're still using the same old approach to weight loss motivation. It's been around for ages, okay? There's a before and there's an after picture, right? You've seen this a bazillion times. So here is Terry Bradshaw before he started using Nutrisystem. And here is Terry Bradshaw after he lost 32 pounds on Nutrisystem. And you watch that and you say, does this still work, this approach? I mean, is, is this the best way to motivate people to lose weight? And the answer is yes. Why? Because all of us, listen, all of us are drawn to an image of a better self. Think about that. All of us are drawn to an image of a better self. We can picture ourselves on the beach in our swimsuit this summer, you know, with greater joy, having lost 5, 10, 15, whatever pounds you need to lose. So this is what John is doing in 1 John 3. He's holding up an after picture of sorts. John says, you know, one day Jesus is returning to earth. And if you're a Christ follower, when you see Christ, that sighting will be transformational. I mean, you'll immediately be made into his likeness. You will still be you, but you'll be a whole new you. You'll be a just like Jesus, you. And John wants you to imagine this. John, John wants you to put a picture of the just like Jesus, you, up on your refrigerator. You know, th- this is what you aspire to become. This is the after picture. And how will that impact the way that you deal with sin in your life? Well, look again at verse 2. John says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now pay close attention to the next line. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves. If this is what you hope for, to be like Christ, then you're going to be getting rid of sin in your life because Jesus is pure, the verse says. You follow John's line of reasoning here? You know, if just like Jesus is who we're destined to become, John says, why don't we get started on that transformation process right now? Why wait till Jesus reappearing? Why don't we start eliminating today the not like Jesus stuff that mars his image in our lives? In fact, let me throw in a bonus thought here. 
is we throw ourselves into this transformation process today, we have an unbelievable ally on our side, the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you've been around Christ Community Church, you've heard me say this before. This is a, a biblical principle. When you surrender your life to Christ, have you done that? You know, consciously, deliberately turned your life over to Christ. The minute you do that, God sends his spirit to come live on the inside. And one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to make you more and more and more like Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul says, we are being transformed into Jesus' image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So if you're a genuine Christ follower, listen to me, every day of your life, every day you get up, God's indwelling spirit is relentlessly shaping you to be more like Christ. How should this impact the way you look at sin in your life? Well, if the Holy Spirit is taking it out, do you want to regularly be putting it back in? Do you want to constantly be undoing what the Holy Spirit is doing? Now, maybe this analogy would help. Uh, let's suppose that you have purchased a, uh, a masterpiece. Now, when you bought it, you bought it at a flea market or a, a garage sale. You didn't know it was a masterpiece, but you took it home and you saw uh, some of the paint. It was chipping off a lower corner and you saw there's another painting under this amateurish painting on the surface and so you take it to an art restorer and he says you have got a masterpiece here and so you pay the guy to do the restoration job and he's getting rid of uh, painstakingly getting getting rid of that dreadful paint on the surface and every day you stop by and you watch what he's doing but you, listen you bring with you a jar of black paint and you splash it across the canvas every day wouldn't that be a stupid thing to do you know, friends, that's exactly what, what, what we do when we sin. The Holy Spirit of God, what, what he's working at is remaking us into the image of Christ, restoring the masterpiece. And what, well, when we sin, what we do is we trash his work, we sully his work, we throw the black paint right over the surface of it again. Just, just a footnote here. This is one of the reasons why when I'm confessing sin in my life on a daily basis, you know, which is a really good thing to do, like every 24 hours you review what you've said and what you've thought and what you've done and you ask God to forgive you for what's displeased him. But I try as often as I, I, I can remember to do this, I try to also apologize to the Holy Spirit. You know, I try to remember to say, and Holy Spirit, I just want to say to you, forgive me. I am so sorry for undoing what you're doing. You know, if I were the Holy Spirit, I would have given up on me a long time ago. I would have left the building. But he doesn't. His work is to relentlessly make us more and more like Christ. So this is the first buster. I will be like Christ when he appears. This is a sin buster. I want you to say it with me. All four campuses, I want you to say it like you mean it. Say it with conviction. Here we go. I will be like Christ when he appears. That was fair. Okay, let's do it one more time. Here we go. I will be like Christ when he appears. Here's a second sin buster. I have God's life in me. I have God's life in me. Now I'm going to read some more verses to you. And as I do, if you've got your own Bible, I want you to mark it up. 
This, again, is why you bring a Bible so you can uh, be jotting things down, circling and underlining. I want you to circle or underline every time John says, born of God or children of God. Okay, born of God or born of him, children of God, child of God. Okay, start at verse 29, chapter 2. John says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. There you go. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God? There it is. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Now, again, we're going to skip around. I want you to drop down to verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. See, the, the main theme of the entire passage, again, let me remind you, is that true Christ followers are regularly breaking free from sin in their lives. But, but why is that the case according to the verses I just read to you? What, what is John's specific argument here? What is the sin buster? What John is saying, friends, is, is that when you surrender your life to Christ, you are spiritually born again. You become a child of God. Now, let me remind you something I, I taught a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it's common to hear people say, well, we're all children of God. You know, God is the father of us all. It's not what the Bible says. You won't find that in Scripture. What, what the Bible says if, is if you want the right to become God's child, this is John chapter 1, verse 12, if you want the right to become God's child, you, you need to believe in Jesus and receive him for who he is into your life. He is Savior. He is King. You need to surrender to Christ. So if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you've been born again, if you've become a child of God, how does that help you break the habit of sin in your life? Well, to quote an old cliche, it's like father, like son. See, see, dads have a way of passing on certain traits to their kids. Sometimes they do it through DNA. Sometimes it's a role modeling sort of thing. So if we are children of God, and listen, and our heavenly father is sinless, what trait do you think he hopes to pass on to us? How about an aversion to sin? And this is exactly what John says in verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Let me try another analogy on you here, okay? If you ask me to describe my dad in one word, okay, like what is his most sterling characteristic? I, I, I could tell you what immediately comes to my mind. My dad is resilient. First word that comes to my mind, he's resilient. I mean, my dad is a guy who takes a lick and it keeps on ticking. I have seen him bounce back countless times throughout the course of my life. I've watched him bounce back from business losses. I've watched him bounce back from personal betrayals. I've watched him bounce back from cancer, surgery. He's just a resilient guy. And so it's not surprising to me as I look at my life, one of the character traits that I, I picked up from my dad, now there are a lot of 
bad character traits, but that's not the point of this analogy, so I'm not going there, okay? But one, one of the good ones is I've kind of picked up his resilience. I have a tendency to bounce back. My wife said to me, you know, you could be down for like a day, but then you're right back in, in the saddle. See, the acorn doesn't fall very far from the oak tree. John's point here is if we're really God's children, then we're not going to put up with sin in our lives because we're going to be like our heavenly father. And God's nature, which is alive in us, abhors sin. John makes this very same point in the first chapter of 1 John. He, he says it kind of in a negative way. If you've got your own Bible, look at verses 5 and 6 of 1 John chapter 1. He says, God is light, middle of verse 5. In him there's no darkness at all, no sin in God. So if we claim to have fellowship with God, John continues, and yet walk in darkness, in other words, we tolerate sin in our lives, we lie and don't live out the truth. See, if you've got fellowship with the one who is light, if God's seed, the sinless God, resides in, in you, then you have a whole different attitude towards sin. Sin buster number two, I have God's life in me. Say that with me. I have God's life in me. Yes. Here's sin buster number three. I cannot continue to sin. Okay, I cannot continue to sin. My daughter Rachel told me a week or so ago that she's just gotten off of Facebook. And she said this is something she's wanted to do for a while, but just not been able to pull the trigger on it. Until recently, she was talking to a friend of hers who got off Facebook, and her friend said, you know, it's unbelievable once you get off Facebook, uh, when you look back and realize how much time it was consuming in your life. She's, I never realized how much Facebook dominated my life till I got away from Facebook. Now, now, this is not an illustration about Facebook, okay? This is an analogy about sin. So don't leave here saying, you know, Pastor Jim says Facebook and you sin. That's not the point. Here's, here's the point. Sin is just like this. Okay, sometimes you don't realize what a stranglehold it has on your life until you break with it. So, sometimes it becomes so familiar to you. It becomes such a, such a pattern, you don't even see it anymore. You know, it's, it's like slipping on your favorite hoodie, right? I mean, it's just, it's just it's natural. What's, what's your habitual sin? Okay, see, most of us, we go back to the same stuff. So before I read the next passage to you, I want you to call to mind, what's the recurring sin or sins in your life? What are the ones that keep popping up? And if you're not sure you know, think for a second about what your best friend would say in this regard, or a family member, somebody who knows you, your spouse, one of your kids, someone who works with you closely. If you ask, so what is my besetting sin? What's the habitual sin you see in my life? What would they say? Okay, I want you to call that to mind as I read beginning at verse 4. Keep that sin in mind. Everyone who sins breaks the law, John says, verse 4. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that Christ appeared, he appeared, so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Now look again at verse 6 that I just read to you. The key line in the verses, 
I just read is the opening sentence to verse 6. No one who lives in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. Now, this sounds very familiar to something I read to you uh, a few moments ago in verse 9. We had skipped ahead to verse 9 to talk about what it means to be born of God. Look at verse 9 again, opening line. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Look at the last line of verse 9. You cannot go on sinning because you've been born of God. Now, what does John mean when he says here, last line of verse 9, the true Christ followers cannot go on sinning? D does that mean that if you surrender your life to Christ, uh, it's impossible for you to sin? You just never sin anymore. Well, if that were the case, then John would be contradicting something he'd said about sin in the first chapter. Go back to chapter 1, verse 8. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. John says, don't tell me you never sinned. You're just fooling yourself if that's what you think. Verse 10, he says the same thing. If we claim we've not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So obviously, John is fully aware of the fact that Christ followers still sin. So when he uses the word cannot in verse 9 of chapter 3, you cannot continue to sin. He's not saying that sin is impossible for a Christ follower. He's, listen, he's saying that sin is unthinkable for a Christ follower. You say, what's the difference? Impossible, unthinkable? Let me illustrate. Let's suppose that you plop me down in front of a TV set to watch a football game. Okay, and this is a classic battle between the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. And you give me a command. You say, I want you to cheer for the Green Bay Packers. And I look at you and I reply, I cannot. <laughs> I, now, what am I saying? Am I saying that it's impossible? No, it is physically possible. I could, I could fist pump in the air. I could yell, go Packers. But it's unthinkable. <laughs> because I'm a Bears fan. Okay, now, hey, this illustration works in reverse if you're a Packer fan, okay? For Christ followers, John is telling us sinning ought to be unthinkable. It's not impossible. You could do it. You will do it. But it ought to be unthinkable because once it becomes, listen, once it becomes unthinkable, you will no longer tolerate it in your life. You, you will no longer get cozy with it. You will no longer allow it to go unopposed. You will no longer continue in it. Sin used to dribble the ball down the court of your life and go in for easy layups. But you became a Christ follower, and now it's no way. Full court press. You know, why this change in our attitude? Why, why do Christ followers treat sin is as unthinkable? John gives us three reasons in the verses I, I just read to you. Jot these down. Three reasons why it's unthinkable. Reason number one is because we now understand that sin is rebellion against God. Look at the opening line of verse 4. John says, everyone who sins breaks the law, God's law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So whenever we sin, we're breaking one of God's laws. And as I've said to you before, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you're doing 50 in a 35 zone and you get pulled over and you say, I didn't know it was 35, you're still going to get the ticket. You're going to get busted. 
Okay, ignorance of God's law is no excuse, which is why we encourage people, one of the reasons, many reasons, to read the Bible on a regular basis. What, what does God say to stay away from? Either explicitly, what sins do you find in whatever text you read? Or, or just by way of illustration. You know, here's what happens to people who meddle with that kind of stuff. Here's how they screw up their lives. Sin puts us on the wrong side of God. Sins are rebellion against God's rule in our lives. I love to read history and, uh, and biography. And so just recently I finished a book called George Washington's Secret Six. Uh, if it sounds familiar, I used an illustration from the book in my Bible-savvy blog a week ago. But uh, in this book, it recounts the history of General George Washington during the time of the Revolutionary War, recruiting a spy ring for the city of New York that was held by the British. Now, it was very difficult for Washington to find people willing to be spies, because if you were caught, you'd be hung. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, you know, what I'm doing is not that serious. I'm just being eyes and ears for General Washington. I'm sending him little notes that say how many troops are in a certain area and how many cannons the British have, and that's it. But to King George III, that was treason. That was treason. Sin is rebellion against God. Now, before you're a Christ follower, it's not a big deal. You know, it's, it's nothing more than sharing a juicy piece of gossip. It's nothing more than having a few too many drinks. It's nothing more than withholding God's share of your income instead of giving it back to him. It's nothing more than stretching the numbers on a sales report. It's nothing more than being a bit obsessed with your favorite sports team. They're number one in your life. It's nothing more than losing it occasionally with your kids. It's no big deal. But then you become a Christ follower, and now you see sin for what it is. It's breaking God's laws. And so you don't want to sin. Sin is becoming more and more unthinkable. Second reason it's becoming unthinkable, because sin is why Christ died. Sin is why Christ... Look at the opening line of verse 5. John says, but you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. Okay, why did Jesus appear on earth and eventually give his life on a cross, John says it was for the purpose of taking away our sins. Now, there are a couple of ways in which Jesus does that. Most of us are familiar with the first of the two ways. We might not be as familiar with the second of the two ways. First way is he takes away sin by taking away its penalty. Okay, what is the penalty of sin? Call it out. Death. Okay, we just said that sin is rebellion against God, so you commit treason against the giver of life, Almighty God, the penalty is death. When Jesus died on the cross, it was to take the death that your sins deserve. It was to die your death. And so now he can offer you forgiveness. If you'll humble yourself, ask him to forgive you. If you'll put your trust in him, if you'll receive him as your savior, your king, he will break sin's penalty in your life. But a lot of professing Christ followers, they stop there. And so they begin to treat Jesus like he's a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. But there, there's a second aspect to breaking sin in our, in our lives, and that is he breaks sin's power. So not only the penalty, the condemnation of God, but its power to control us. 
So, so if you've prayed for Jesus to take away your sin and you're thinking solely in terms of forgiveness, but you're fully intending to continue in those sins, John would say, you don't get it. You, you don't get the full-orbed way in which Jesus wants to take away your sins. Now, let, let, let me use an illustration here that, that will be helpful. Let's say that I struggle with resentment. Okay, that's a besetting sin in my life, resentment. One of the things I resent is I resent it when Sue corrects me. Okay, this is hypothetical, all right? So, <laughs> none of you guys, husbands, ever wrestle with this. You always receive correction mildly from your wives, right? Okay, but let's say I, I, I resent it. And so when I recognize, ah, oh, I've done it again, you know, I go to God for forgiveness. I say, you know, break sin's penalty. Just wash me with forgiveness. And he does. But he also wants me to stop doing it. You see the difference? You know, Je Jesus, Jesus is pleased when I come and say sorry. But he wants to hear more than sorry, 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 sorry. He wants to hear enough already. I want to be done with this. I want you to break the power of sin in my life. We sing an old hymn around here, the words of which go, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. Yea, God. Yea, Jesus. He wants to break the power of sin in your life. Here's a third reason sin ought to be unthinkable. It's because sin is incompatible with knowing Christ. Look at the middle of verse 5. It says, in him, Jesus is no sin. There's no sin in Jesus. So no one who lives in him, John continues, keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. One of the things that drives me nuts about our contemporary post-Christian culture is that we, we are no longer allowed to say that something is wrong or that something is sinful. The minute you say that, someone will object. Well, who are you to judge? right? And if they know that you're a Christ follower, they'll look at you and say, didn't Jesus say not to judge? And, and so, so we've sort of concluded that Jesus is cool with just about every behavior. Okay, you know, nothing, nothing gets Jesus upset. Now, if you go to the passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, don't judge, what, what you'll find is that what he's prohibiting is hypocritical judging. What he's prohibiting is the kind of judging that, that's based on your own opinions. But friends, Jesus is not afraid to call sin, sin, and never prohibits you from calling sin, sin, especially in your own life. You know, don't become cozy with sin in this anything-goes culture in which we live. You know, people are fond of recounting the story of Jesus engaging the woman who was caught in adultery. So she's brought before Jesus, and the righteous, self-righteous religious leaders are hoping he'll judge her. And instead, what does he say? He says, I don't condemn you. End of story, right? It's not the end of the story. People cut it off before Jesus gives his last line. What's his closing line? I don't condemn you. And then he looks at her and says, go now and leave your life of sin. Stop doing this. Okay, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is not cool with sin in my life. It's, it's antithetical to who he is. 
You and I, we can't have a growing relationship with Jesus while we continue to hang on to our sin. And that's why, as I've been praying for the impact of today's message this week, you know, you always try to envision what would God do if people really caught hold of the truth you're about to teach from his word? What would happen to their lives? One of the things that would, would happen is you would be set free and your relationship with Jesus would begin to take off. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is why Christ died, to break its penalty and its power. And sin is incompatible with knowing Christ. That's why sin ought to be unthinkable for a Christ follower. So sin buster number three, I cannot continue to sin. Say that with me. I cannot continue to sin. One more time. I cannot continue to sin. Number four, I have been freed from the devil's control. I have been freed from the devil's control. Have you, have you ever heard of the baby elephant principle? If you Google it, that's what it comes out as. The baby elephant principle, don't do it now, okay? Here, here it is. I'll give it to you. Summarize it. The way they train elephants for the circus is when the elephant is very young, they, they put a chain around one of its feet, and they attach the chain to a huge stake that's driven deep in the ground. So that elephant, because it's relatively small as elephants go at that point in time, it struggles, it pushes, it pulls, but it, it realizes it's captive. It's not going anywhere. So over time, it stops struggling. Over time, it gives up. Over time, it acquiesces to the fact that it's captive. Okay, now that elephant grows up and you travel with it in the circus and you know how they keep it captive? They got the chain around one of its feet, but they attach it to, listen, a small tent peg. That's it. And the elephant never challenges it. Why? Because it's, it's, lear it's learned. You, you can't challenge it. You're not going anywhere. You're captive. Some of us look at sin that way. The deep stake in the ground is, is the devil. We look and we say, hey, I've got a supernatural enemy. I've got somebody who, who is relentlessly trying to bring me down. There's sins in my life I'm just not going to break free of in this life. Let me tell you what John says about that. As I do, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come out at our four campuses. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song of worship about breaking free from sin. And we're going to collect our gifts, our offerings as well, which is one of the ways you break free from materialistic sin. So get ready to participate. But let me read a verse we've been skipping around. Okay, it's verse 8. It's the last verse to cover in this section, we've looked at the verses before, the verses after. Verse 8 says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. So if sin is still, you know, just an ongoing, unabated thing in your life, you're not pushing back at it at all, John says it originates from the devil. But the reason the Son of God appeared, listen, was to destroy the devil's work. To destroy the devil's work. The, the word destroy there is a word that can also be translated from the original Greek text as to loose from. Jesus came to loose you from Satan's control. Yes, he used to hold you captive. But if you've surrendered your life to Christ, then Jesus has whooped Satan on your behalf. 
The, the devil is no more than a small tent peg now from which you can easily break free, which is why James says in James 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he'll what? You know this? He'll flee. He'll run away. Resist him. You know, have you been telling yourself that certain sins, you know, they're just going to hold you in their grip until the day you die? It's just the way it's going to be. You know, you're always going to drink too much. You know, you're always going to be drawn into pornography and acting out on it. You're always going to blow up in anger. It's just, you know, it's who you are. You're always going to spend too much money. You're always going to care too little for needy people. You're always going to cut. You're always going to, what? You fill in the blank. Your enemy is too powerful for you to break free. John says, no. No, Jesus has reduced your enemy to a small tent peg. Let's say sin buster number four together. I have been freed from the devil's control. Say it with me. I have been freed from the devil's control. What sin do you need to put a stop to in your life today? Let me encourage you to put these four sin busters, put them on a three-by-five card and post them someplace where you'll see them on a regular basis. You'll repeat them out loud. Read them off the card. You know, maybe that needs to be on the screen of your PC. Maybe that needs to be on the dashboard of your car or over your desk at work or on the refrigerator door in your kitchen. Maybe it needs to be inside your checkbook. So every time you, you look at it, you'll be reminded of these four statements. I'll say one, you say it after me. I'll say the next, you repeat it again. Here we go. I will be like Christ when he appears. I have God's life in me. I cannot continue to sin. I have been freed from the devil's control. These are truths that will be, begin to bust you free from sin. And of course, you don't want to stop there. You know, you want to get in a community group where you'll find people who hold you accountable and be in your face. You want to start reading God's word on a regular basis so that, you, you know, you're getting empowered and nourished by God. You want to check out Tuesday night. You want to check out care night, especially if your sin has become an addictive behavior that you want to break free from. But this is a great place to start with these four de declarations.